So today's Palm Sunday. Hey, happy Palm Sunday. You know, last week we've been, um, well, through Lent, we've been going through the idea of what the cross and the resurrection mean through the lens of Rene Girard. And so we went through the story in pretty, pretty uh, good depth last week about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, looking at it through that lens. And we talked about the week that Jesus was killed and about how on the Sunday before his death, which we celebrate today, crowds of people lined the streets on the way to Jerusalem as he rode a donkey into it and they took the cloaks off of their back and they placed them on the ground for Jesus to ride over so that they could honor this rabbi singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. And yet this same crowd by that Friday was shouting, crucify him. And we talked about how quickly supportive crowds can become angry mobs when there's a lot of anxiety in a social system. And how when some people falsely accuse Jesus of blasphemy and of subverting the nation, that other people quickly mirrored those accusations and they started to rally around those charges. And almost like this, like as quick as you could blink, Jesus had been charged and condemned to die. And he was beaten, and he was mocked, and he was paraded around town for everyone to see. And he was dehumanized, so it made it easier to kill him. And then as he hung on that Roman cross, carrying all of the projected sin and violence of all of humanity, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And we talked about how Jesus represented all of the innocent, scapegoated peoples of the world. That we humans declared Jesus guilty, and we sentenced him to die. But then God overturned our sentence by raising his son from the dead. And God's action in doing that resurrection tells us Jesus is not guilty, he's innocent. And you need to remember his death until he comes again because all of your other scapegoats are innocent as well. Remember, do not do this to other people. And Jesus' death and resurrection revealed the absurdity of scapegoating people to try and maintain social stability. So for Lent, many of us have been reading this book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. Or maybe you've been listening to some of the podcast recaps. And if you haven't had time or you're new or you're visiting, that's okay. But I just want to let you know I'm going to incorporate some of what we've been learning about the cross from James Cone into the sermon today. James Cone was a theologian at Union Theological Seminary. I think he passed away just last year. And the bottom line takeaway from his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, is that during the decades after the Civil War, when thousands of black people were lynched across the American South, not a single white theologian or pastor drew a parallel between the lynching of black people and Jesus' lynching on the cross. Not a single one. And even black theologians and pastors were cautious in naming this parallel because they feared for their own lives. And it took poets and writers and musicians and artists depicting that connection, doing things like painting Jesus on the cross as a black man surrounded by white Americans who were watching it to make space for what should have been an obvious connection. And Cohn tells us that the utter inability of Americans especially white Americans, to be able to see and to name what was happening. That innocent black people were serving as American scapegoats in the same way that Jesus served as a scapegoat in his time when he hung on a cross 
can only be explained by a cultural blindness that is the result of white supremacist beliefs. A cultural blindness that prevented whites from being able to truly empathize with the black experience. And even after black artists and theologians began to name these similarities between the scapegoating of Jesus and the lynching of black people, liberal white theologians and pastors felt like they were being benevolent by even acknowledging the issue. Like, well, we, we can see that it's happening, but we urge caution and slow change for civil rights. But meanwhile, black people lived in terror and were kept disempowered by legal discrimination and were dying and losing people that they loved. And that's when Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us that at a certain point, waiting for the people with power to grant liberation is a fool's game. He wrote, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. He goes on, frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was quote-unquote well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. And because white people have not found much empathy for the black experience, James Cone writes about how difficult it is for black people to embrace the same God that the white people have embraced. He says, how is this the same God? Right? The same God that white people claim gave them justification for lynching black people is also worshipped by black people who find in Jesus a liberator. So how is Jesus both a lyncher and a liberator? That cannot be. Which is why Cone says that many black Christians make a distinction between white Jesus and black Jesus. I was talking about this a little, my in-laws are here. Make sure you say hi to them later, Tom and Gretchen. And I told them I was going to be preaching on black Jesus this morning. And Gretchen reminded me, she said, oh yeah, you know that show Blackish? I don't know if any of you guys have seen it. It's a lovely little sitcom. The grandma on there is always praying to black Jesus. This is what we're talking about. So on the one hand, Cone says, the white Christ gave black people slavery, segregation, and lynching. Told them to turn the other cheek, look for the reward in heaven, be patient, they were told. Your suffering will be rewarded, for that is the source of your spiritual redemption. White Christ says you deserve to suffer. Your suffering is sacred even, and it will be rewarded in another time and another place. But on the other hand, black Jesus frees people from those chains. So black Jesus is shorthand for viewing the cross and the resurrection through the lens of marginalized people. Black Jesus is shorthand for viewing the cross and the resurrection through the lens of marginalized people. My black and brown siblings find in Jesus a savior who declared their suffering absurd and evil, not justified. And they find in Jesus a deliverer who came to break their chains and to free them from fear and from literal bondage. And they find in Jesus a suffering servant whose suffering was declared unjust and whose weakness was turned to strength by a victorious God. Now, I read this following quote from Cone's book on the podcast, but I want to read it here because I think it's worth all of us considering together as a faith community. And it's a little bit long, but I want to listen attentively to this gift that James Cone has given us. He said, black people did not need to go to seminary and study theology 
to know that white Christianity is fraudulent. As a teenager in the South where whites treated blacks with contempt, I and other blacks knew that the Christian identity of whites was not a true expression of what it means to follow Jesus. We wondered how whites could live with their hypocrisy, such a blatant contradiction of the man from Nazareth. And in parentheses, he says, I still am wondering about that. He says, white conservative Christianity's blatant endorsement of lynching as a part of its religion and white liberal Christian silence about that lynching placed both of them outside of the Christian identity. He says, I could not find one sermon or theological essay, not to mention a book, opposing lynching by a prominent liberal white preacher. There was no way a community could support or ignore lynching in America while representing in word and deed the one who was lynched by Rome. And then he talks about Ida B. Wells, who was a black journalist who told the truth about lynching. He said, for her, Christian identity had to be validated by opposing mob violence against a powerless people. And no amount of theological sophistry could convince her otherwise. As far as she was concerned, white Christianity was a counterfeit gospel. That's how James Cone and Ida B. Wells and others say Christian identity is validated. It's by opposing mob violence against powerless people. And I wonder if we, especially those of us who are white, can hear that from our black brother. I mean, like really hear it without feeling defensive. A gospel that is infused with religious ritualized violence against the vulnerable is not the gospel. And the story that we tell about white Jesus is that he was slaughtered by an angry, wrathful, vengeful God who commanded innocent blood or demanded that innocent blood be spilled to assuage human sin. There's a softer end of that, the way I was taught, that God, of course, did this out of love and sorrow and regret, but still needed the blood of his innocent son. So white Jesus was killed by his own father, And that's kind of a scary God. Black Jesus was slaughtered by humans. Black Jesus looked at the mob killing him and cried out to God the Father to have mercy on them, on us. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So black Jesus wasn't killed by his own father, but he was defended by him. And he was declared innocent when his father went to bat for him and overturned our human verdict of the death penalty and resurrected his son. When we follow a white Jesus, it's natural that we learn to demand innocent blood be spilled to assuage human sin. We demand that the innocent suffer for our collective sin. We enslave people, killing literally millions in the process. We lynch people. We justify legal discrimination, we separate children from their families, and we place them in camps on our borders in for-profit detention centers. We shoot unarmed black and brown bodies at far higher rates than we do white bodies. And white Jesus finds justification for these actions against those with less power. However, if we follow black Jesus, we stand with the vulnerable. And we declare them undeserving of the violence that's being done against them, saying it's an injustice. And we demand an overturning of the collective mob verdict. Nearly the entire Bible was written from the perspectives of the downtrodden. It was written from the perspectives of the oppressed, the poor, the abused, the dispossessed, the outcast, 
people poor in health, like all the second-class citizens of the world who have greater insight into the saving work of God, just like they did when Jesus walked the earth. Right? The dispossessed recognized Jesus, and they recognized what he was doing was good news, far more readily than those with power. Right? Remember who his followers were. The theologian, womanist Kelly Brown Douglas says, for made clear through Jesus is that the power of the incarnate God is best reflected in the condition of those rendered powerless. It's reflected through the crucified classes of people. So when we neglect the perspectives of the crucified classes of people, the likelihood that we interpret scripture and the gospel of Jesus starts, the likelihood that we distort that rises exponentially. And this isn't meant to to glamorize or romanticize the poor and the mistreated people of the world, but just to acknowledge that Jesus' life path looked far more like theirs than not, and that God can genuinely relate to human suffering, and that God chose to lead us humans to a better way of living by becoming one of the ones who suffered at our hands in order to show us that crucifying people, literally or metaphorically, is both unproductive and cruel. So what do we learn looking at Jesus the way the crucified classes of people look at him? Well, first we learn that suffering is not of God. You know, this is one of the things that James Cone actually helped me with personally when I first started reading him a few years back. And that's to understand that there is nothing inherently redemptive about suffering. Suffering is tragic. Suffering sucks. And God doesn't cause you or someone you love to suffer to test your faith, to make you a better person. You know, think the Apostle Paul, I would agree with him, he says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, right? That God can take that suffering and that pain and turn it into something beautiful, but God is neither the source nor the cause of our suffering. I'm going to read fairly extensively here from Isaiah chapter 61. This is the chapter that Jesus quoted in his hometown when he was starting out his own ministry. And it's what he saw as his his defining purpose, if you will. So sort of his thesis statement for how he saw what he was doing. And I want to listen to it through the lens of black Jesus. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, and they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They're going to restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Right? He's talking about the poor and the oppressed here. You will be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in your riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. For I, the Lord, love justice. And I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And in my faithfulness, I'll reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. And their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. 
And all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people that the Lord has blessed. So this way of looking at what the good news does tells us that God heals and restores and blesses people who have experienced pain and poverty and heartbreak and longing and injustice. And the Jewish people who were under a lot of oppression at that time, they understood God the way that James Cone also understood God. That God is a God who snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. Right? That this is a God who turns beauty from ashes, joy from mourning. And when we're tempted to feel overwhelmed by the sadnesses of the world that we find comfort and hope in knowing that God is on the side of the suffering, right? And God is with us when we suffer. And God consoles those who ache from the loneliness and sickness and heartbreak of the world, that God consoles you and does not wish you harm. I know some people have grown up with an idea of God that God is out to get them or is punishing them for not being good enough or sends all these trials and tests. God does not wish you harm. Something else we learn from black Jesus is that even with his wounds and his scars, he didn't remain a victim. Right? And he taught us that the way that we can move from being a victim to being a hero in our own story is to forgive those who harmed us. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we don't forgive the people who have harmed us in our lives to forget we don't forgive people to get rid of the scars. You don't have to pretend like nothing has ever happened to you. And we don't forgive for the benefit of the person or the people who hurt us. Forgiveness is a way of shifting the power back to the victim. Right? If you've been harmed, mistreated, abused, falsely accused, you control forgiveness. Right? It's not contingent on anything that the perpetrator can do or say. When we don't forgive, it eats us alive. Bitterness, obsessive thoughts, anger, those things will sometimes quite literally drain the life out of us. And forgiveness helps release us of those things. And I will say this, that forgiveness, especially for deep trauma, like deep trauma, abuse, getting cheated on, being fired, having deep, like racist and misogynist patterns of abuse against you, homophobic, sometimes that can take years to forgive. I like to tell people to be gentle with yourselves if you're in that space. Give yourself time. And there might come a time when you're able to forgive those who harm you. And then you can invite people, the people who have shown themselves to be trustworthy, the people who have shown that they can hold your story, and they can come and they can look at your wounds and your scars just like Jesus invited his disciples to come up and to touch them. And that's when we acknowledge that, yeah, it, it wasn't that nothing bad happened to me, but now we can witness to the goodness of God and we can tell the story that we read about in Isaiah. We can tell the story of God turning our despair into praise and that mourning into joy. Now, reconciliation is a whole other beast. Like, this is important. I know we have some people who have joined us later. We did a whole sermon series on forgiveness and reconciliation maybe three years ago. And I think this is so important to say. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. And reconciliation happens under specific conditions. It can only be accomplished when the ones who participate 
in harming you. The ones who participate in the scapegoating mob or the one who has abused you or harmed you or cheated on you or whatever, when they name and they take responsibility for those sins. And until or unless that happens, reconciliation isn't a possibility. Right? And that's why racial reconciliation will not take place in the U.S. until we white people can collectively name and take responsibility for our actions, our theologies, our laws, the continued mistreatment of people with darker skin, and to make restitution, which is included but not limited to reparations. I like what James Cone said. Ken and I were just chatting about this this morning. At the end of, at the end of his book, he's kind of like, we had no reconciliation in this country. Where did all of that hate go? Yeah. Oh, it's still there. It's just socially less acceptable to display it, although it's getting socially more acceptable again. It's still there. It has not been dealt with. It was one of the deepest insights of his book. And if you're queer, reconciliation with family members who reject you can't happen unless they own the harm that they've done to you. And that doesn't mean that you can't stay connected with those loved ones. I know it's, it's different for each situation. And I know that that lack of reconciliation always means that the connection feels shallow and it's deeply painful. And God would say that's unjust and that's wrong. Some of you who are not queer might have family members with whom your relationship remains rocky or shallow because of your willingness to embrace your queer friends or to go to a church that has a queer pastor. Maybe they're upset because you embrace your friends of color and are standing with them. And this is what the Apostle Paul talked about when he said, we pick up our crosses and we carry them, right? That allies bear the marks of the scapegoat as well. And those wounds and those scars are on your bodies too. And as people of Jesus, we always long for reconciliation. That's what we hope for and we long for. Reconciliation is hard work. And I will tell you, I think that's the most deeply spiritual work that we can do as followers of Jesus is reconciliation. And that means on both ends, whether you're a person who needs to say you're sorry, right? this is where people who have done 12-step programs, man, they've done the work. Because there's a step where you have to go and you have to own what you have done against other people. That is deep spiritual work. Or whether you're on the other side trying to discern whether or not reconciliation is a possibility because you've been hurt. And reconciliation is what God is offering us humans. You know, he has forgiven humans. He's forgiven all of us ever since he hung on that cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That was a blanket forgiveness for all humans who have ever lived. He released us. But to reconcile to God, we have to own that we are at times part of that mob that crucifies the vulnerable and that we oftentimes do it without even knowing it, right? And so we acknowledge that and we ask the spirit of God, the spirit of the advocate to fill us and to teach us. I know Ken mentioned we're doing baptisms next week. You know, that's the marker of people who publicly decide that they want to declare that they're going to follow this path of Jesus, who want to come up and say, you know what, I know I'm part of the mob and I want to try and do that differently and I want to confess that and I want to do my best to follow in the way of Jesus. I want to live a different way. When we go under, we're identifying with Jesus's death, with the scapegoat. And when we come up, we're identifying with Jesus's resurrection and declaring that this isn't the last word. Life comes from death, victory out of defeat, strength comes from weakness. Some of us may have been baptized into the story of white Jesus. And you might want to renew your path 
by being baptized into the story of black Jesus. Always happy to do those. I did my own renewal last year, actually. And I would encourage you to do that if you feel like the Spirit is tugging on you. You know, when Jesus himself was baptized, he heard a voice come out of heaven that said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And I think that's the space here where we find our identity in Jesus, right? It's, this is my son or my daughter or my non-binary child in whom I am well pleased. And it's from that space there that we embrace the spirit of the advocate and go out into the world to live a path of advocating for the powerless. And with that, I'm going to move into a time of meditation. We often do three minutes of either silence or guided meditation. I want us to just sit with some silence because I know this was a heavier sermon today and had a lot in it. And so what I want you to do is just relax. Picture yourself in a place that makes you feel comfortable. Picture Jesus or if... If, if you're not sure about Jesus, maybe just picture the spirit of love, whatever that looks like to you embodied, sitting with you, and just in that silence, allow space for the spirit to speak to you about whatever it is that the spirit wants to say. And we're just going to be silent babies, and people make noise, and that's okay, and I'll let you know when this is up.
God, we thank you that you so embody love, that you have the humbleness to come down and to suffer on our behalf to show us your heart for healing us when we suffer. Lord, as a community, I ask that your spirit would teach us how to better advocate for those who are vulnerable. And at a very deep heart level, Lord, I ask that you would help us to have real empathy for those who suffer and that you would forgive us when we haven't been able to really put ourselves in the shoes of another. I ask that you teach us in your ways and that you would fill us and refill us with the spirit of love and advocacy, that you would open our eyes. And I ask for those of us who have been harmed by others, which is probably all of us on different levels, that God, that you would give us discernment to know how and when that we can reconcile. And I ask that you would give us the strength to forgive as your son forgave us. I ask that you would comfort those who are brokenhearted. And I ask especially, Lord, for our LGBTQ people whose families have rejected them or for whom it's, it's a bumpy road. And for the allies whose families are also experiencing that sort of tension. I ask, Lord, that above all, we will find our identity in you, that we will know that we are loved, we are beloved, and out of that space that you will start to bring that deep healing, that you will turn all of that mourning that you've seen and that you know in our hearts and that you will bring joy out of that. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.